Thank you for joining the Home Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at myhomechurch.org. But God wants to use that to lead us into something new as a body. And real simple, it's, it's just hunger for Jesus. And that's really what I want to talk to you about again is the presence of the Lord as we were, were sharing this last weekend that Jesus is what you need. Jesus is life. There's nothing that I can offer you that can spare your marriage. There's nothing I can offer you that can redeem you from the pit of whatever you may find yourself in. There's only one. It's Jesus. And I want to just share this to just set the stage because we're going to jump into something specific that the Lord has put on my heart. But when we were going into Deeper Conference, the, first of all, the name Deeper was uh, simply a call to, uh, an invitation to know the Lord in a deeper way, right? How many know that you can continually consume the bread of life but never exhaust him? Like there's always more in Christ. And I know we shared that going in of this hunger for the Lord, but we got this name Deeper to bring us deeper into the Lord. And while we were preparing, um, Crystal, my wife, Pastor Crystal, received a vision of mountains, And we weren't really sure exactly what that meant, but as I just began to sit before the Lord and kind of pour over the scriptures and say, God, what are you showing? It's a theme I've seen in the scriptures, but in a way that I I never really grasped the weight of it, which is the mountain of the Lord. And I don't know if you've ever read and looked into this and and seen this, how important the mountain of the Lord is. But as I began to just step back and, and God began to stir my heart, I began to see from beginning to end how often God has called man up to the mountain to meet with him. The mountain of the Lord is actually this place that's been set aside as, as a God's house, his dwelling place. In fact, there's a question that runs throughout Scripture, both explicitly and implicitly, which is who may dwell in the house of the Lord? Who may ascend the holy hill? The mountain of the Lord is this picture of God's holy dwelling place, his sanctuary of which man was created for. And it, when I begin to look through scriptures, you see Noah and Mount Ararat as the, as the ark rested. You see uh, Abraham being called up. You see Moses being called up to the mountain. You see in the New Testament, Jesus calls his disciples from the mountain. He gives the sermon of the mount. There's Mount of Transfiguration. Even in the pagan cultures, they worshiped in what was known as the high places. There's something profound about the mountain of the Lord. It's a marking of God's presence. And what I felt God begin to stir is is when God calls us away, because of what Jesus has done, we actually don't have to ascend a physical mountain anymore. The presence of God now comes to reside within a man. And I want to walk you through something in Scripture to show you how man was actually called, man was actually created to live on the mountain of the Lord with God himself. Man was created for the presence of God. And as we lost that, Jesus came and has reestablished that in our lives. And the Lord began to show me that when God calls us to come away, that symbolically, spiritually, God is calling us to come up into him. It's the call of ascension. To come away is to actually ascend into God himself. It's not, let me just be clear before we jump in. I am not speaking, we talk of the mountain of the Lord. We often think of this in a very secular mindset, mountaintop experiences. I'm not talking about living a life free of trial and free of the things of this world. I'm talking about living a life that is so saturated by the presence of God that there is a heavenly aroma upon your life. I am talking about Ephesians 2, which says that you have been raised and seated in the heavenly places. And that when you come away unto God, he actually calls you up into himself. There's a divine communion that takes place. And you begin to actually walk through the valleys of life, but from rest. You live from your heavenly perspective. 
You live from the authority that you are seated with Christ. Man, symbolically, what happens on the mountain looks a lot different from the valley. Perspective shifts. Some of us are so consumed with fleshly pursuits, fleshly thoughts, fleshly desires for one reason. We've stopped coming away. And if we would just come away and begin to come up to him, we would actually see as he sees. And we'd realize the things that we once held so dear are actually not that important. A presence-centered life will begin to manifest an ascended lifestyle. And I want us to just hear the call. I felt God just breathing into me this call to come up higher. How? How do you come up higher? You come away. And when you come away, you encounter him. And you begin to live from your heavenly identity here on earth. And you begin to be a marking place for heaven on earth. And I want to I walk through this progression with you in the scriptures that God just, man, just broke open for me of man being created for the presence of God. And I want to just, just hopefully provoke a hunger to be a people to come away, as we started sharing last week, to live from that presence. Go ahead and, and turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. And again, the mountain of the Lord. I'm going to read that scripture in just a moment, but I just want to unpack this. I want to walk through this with you. I want you to see so clearly from the scriptures that man was created. When I'm talking about the mountain of the Lord, man was created for the presence of God. Now, many of you are familiar with the story of Genesis. Many of you are familiar with the Garden of Eden. But let me just, it's important to just kind of lay this out again and lay a foundation for you. It says, the scriptures show us that in the Garden of Eden, this was a place that was known as paradise. It's literally a place that was abounding with life in every single way you can imagine. There was fruit and trees, and man even lived in perfect harmony with animals. And we could go on and talk about the blessing of this place because the presence of God was in the Garden of Eden. But all of these things were just small tokens in comparison to the fact that man had an exceedingly greater delight. And that was that he could live in the presence of God. Man was created to live with God in this way. No hindrance. He could behold the glory of God, the face of God. The Garden of Eden is a picture of the house of God in which man was meant to gaze upon his face and walk with him. My friends, this is what first and foremost me and you were made for. Adam and Eve, our first parents, got to experience the bliss of living in the pure presence of God with nothing cutting them off, no hindrances at all. He was called to walk with him. And, you know, as I was going through this, um, I felt deeply just, just so stirred the fact that Adam and Eve, for a moment, got to experience the goal of creation. Like, me and you are living on this earth for a one primary purpose above everything else, and that is to walk in fellowship with God. And life will never make sense until you walk in intimacy with the Lord. And they got to experience this, this goal of creation for a season in their life before the sin. They got to experience fellowship with God in such a way that it was this all-encompassing life of worship that we would just say it's just called glory. Glory, seeing the face of God. And as I was going through this, I actually had a, a, a conversation with Caesar last week. And I want you to, I just want to lay this out for you so you understand where we're going. To see how man was created for union and fellowship with God. And how we so miss this and we wonder why our hearts are so empty. But you know that when, when Caesar was sharing something with me that was, that was just so amazing of what God was revealing to him. 
Do you know that when God came to Adam after Adam sinned, do you remember this? Adam sins, and what does God first address? What does he first say? He says, Adam, where are you? Isn't that interesting that when he sins, God doesn't first come and reveal and bring up the sin of Adam's life. He's bringing up the greater issue that has happened because of the sin. He says, where are you, Adam? Why? Because I've come to meet with you. Because this is why you were made. I've come to walk with you as your maker, but you are not here. Why are you not here, Adam? And I felt this, just this fatherly voice speaking in my life, and I've heard it before, of a voice that says, where are you? I'm not speaking to just unbelievers who are running from the Lord. I'm speaking to Christians. I felt the heart of God breaking over so many Christians who are so busy doing so many good things that they've lost God in the process. And the Father's voice is saying, where are you? I've made you for one primary purpose above everything else, to meet with you, that you would know me. Where have you gone? What are you so busy with? Can I tell you that our calendars are so full of so many good things, and yet our hearts remain restless and empty because our prayer closets are vacant, because our secret places are vacant. We forgot how to behold his face who is life. Our libraries, man, the Lord's just stirring my heart of myself. I look back at my library. I have volumes upon volumes of commentaries. Oh, I know so much about him and yet can know so little because I don't spend time with him. Corey Ten Boone, a Holocaust survivor, said, beware of the barrenness of a busy life. Oh, I think that we're in a time where we, we are doing more and more for a God that we know less and less about. And listen, our heart is to bring people back to the simple and pure devotion of Jesus. We've gotten to a place where we can, man, we can share so many things about him, but when we get close, we actually don't know the heart of our Father, and if we're really honest, we're so lacking inside because we've missed the idea of just walking with him in intimacy. I believe, I believe wholeheartedly that we are living in what I would call the age of information, now, let me be clear on this. I am so blessed at the fact that at the click of a fingertip, I have access to a wealth of information of those who have gone before me, those who have plunged the depths of God and have pulled up treasures that I can read from that and say, wow, this is incredible. And yes, it stirs my faith. And yes, it, it, in many ways, it, it propels me to want to know him more. I'm not denying the, the reality of, of wisdom to glean from those who've gone before you. But the danger in that is that I also can access so much information about God without ever meeting him face to face myself. And what happens is, is we have so much knowledge about him, but we do not actually know him. We don't have encounters with him. My friends, when you look in the scriptures, it's encounters with God that changes man. It's when God calls men up to the mountain of the Lord or wherever it may be, and they hear the voice of God. They see his face. It's on the mountain of the Lord where man is changed deeply. He has a revelation of God's character, God's nature. God begins to speak a word into him, and then God releases him back into the world. We need more people who are willing to get away to ascend the holy hill in order to have not just their own words, but have heard the voice of the Father and speak from that place. And so what happens, listen, what happens in the age of information is that when we acquire all this knowledge without encounter, anytime you have knowledge without encounter, you are becoming more and more religious. And you are falling into the rut of a form without power. 
Now, yes, let's plunge and study. I love studying. I'm in college myself. I love to, but I'm saying we need to know him. We need to walk with him. We need to prioritize a life of coming away and being in intimacy with him. Let, let, me, let me go even a step further to show you that your primary purpose for existence is to live from the presence of God. When you go through the actual creation account, right, day one, day two, day three, all the way up to day seven, six days God creates everything. On the seventh day, he rests. And when we work through this progression of creation, if you're like me, I've often stopped at day six and looked at this as the pinnacle of creation. Man himself. Man is the crown of God's creation. And the reason we do this is because of how much is typically written about man. Right? We see that man has been given incredible stewardship of, of uh, responsibilities here on earth. We see that man has been made in the image and likeness of God. But let me tell you something. All of those things that God was revealing to me, the fact that we are made in the image and likeness of God is not to exalt man as the chief end of creation. It is to reveal that unlike the rest of creation, we've been made with the unique ability to engage our maker. The primary purpose of explaining who we are and the fact that we're in his image, we're in his, and in his likeness, is not to say this is the end result of creation, but it is to encourage us of the prospect of seventh-day communion with him. The point is not so that we can just say, look at me, but to know that you have an ability to hear the voice of your creator. You have the ability to enter into a Sabbath rest where you rest in him and walk with him so intimately. And here is the problem. If we miss this, and if we miss that the real purpose of our creation is, is, is to walk with him, when we do not find our life from the intimacy that God has made us for, we are then forced, as I have many times, to turn back to the stewardship of the lower creation, the responsibilities we have been given to try to find life from these things. And that is what exactly what happens over and over and over again. As we stop coming away and stop walking with him and stop hearing his voice over our life, we are then forced to take the purposes he's given in our life and try to find life from these assignments. We try to find joy, identity, value, significance from our serving rather than from communion with him. We start to redefine in this sense, we start to redefine what success looks like. All of a sudden now success is not a matter of intimacy, it's a matter of influence. All of a sudden, it's a matter of pursuit of position rather than presence. All of a sudden, because we are so insecure in who we are, because we don't know how to come away and hear our Father speak over us, all of a sudden, we have to now build bigger kingdoms in the church. We've got to have secret competition in the church. We have to have more than the other person. Why? Because everything I am now comes from my responsibilities here. Rather than if I just came away with him and I heard the voice of my father speak over me, I love you and I'm pleased in you, all of that striving and lusting for things would be swallowed up when I hear his pleasure over my life. All of it, all of the lusting after things, all of the, all of the working for his validation, all of the working for, for his acceptance when you come away and learn to live from intimacy in the presence of God, You'll actually stop working for it and now start working from it. And now all of a sudden you don't need to jostle for positions and try to prove yourself. We don't need to do that in the church because we're so, we're so secure in who we are in the Lord. We've heard his voice speak over us. And I want to just, I want to encourage you that if you find yourself just, man, work hard. 
Do things with excellence. But if you find yourself just being driven by the roles that God has given you, I want to encourage you to learn to live a lifestyle of coming away. Learn to prioritize coming away with the Lord and living from that place of intimacy with him. And you'll find that things will begin to come in proper order. Augustine said that it's not about loving these things. It's about the order of loves. It's that they've taken supremacy over God himself. I I am a firm believer. You can call it however you want to call it, but this is the two words I use, and I think you'll get the point, is that there is a a major difference between God's purpose, purpose, and the passion of our heart. Purpose is your assignment. Purpose is your stewardship of the lower creation. Purpose is what God has asked you to do. Now, if you've been here, you know all too well that I firmly believe in the importance of our purpose. I believe that everyone has incredible callings on their life here. I believe that everyone has incredible destiny over their life. Like we talk about often Ephesians 3.20, God going way beyond what you could ever do in your natural grasp as you surrender to the Lord. I believe in all of that. I believe it's important that at times you need to keep that in front of you and motivate you and remind yourself of what God has spoken over your life. I believe all that, so don't get me wrong. But listen to me. There is a very big difference between purpose and the passion of your heart. Your purpose is your assignment. The passion of your heart is him. And if we're not careful, what often happens is the purpose and the passion of our heart become one. And all of a sudden, the assignments that God has given us have now become our passion. And what happens is we're so unaware of the inward destruction that's taking place as we run ragged trying to do so many things because this is where we find our significance. What happens, we don't understand it. We we can't identify the emptiness of what's happening because we've given this type of lifestyle a virtuous name. We say what? I am faithful to my calling. I am so faithful to my calling that I don't even have time for my family anymore. I'm so faithful to my calling that I don't even have time to come around on Sundays anymore. I'm so faithful to the career that God has given me that I don't even have time for God anymore. And the Lord was speaking to me, says, my son, that's not faithfulness, that's idolatry. And the church, we have to be purged of this because we've lost sight of what we were really made for, to know him in the simplicity of sitting at his feet, that we need our hearts to be purged over making our assignments the passions of our heart. And they have now become everything to us. Oh, let the wonder of the fact that you have a potter who has crafted you as his vessel in such a unique way that you can hear his voice, that you can know his ways, and that he calls you more than anything else to live from that place of intimacy. And so let me just read this one verse to you. I, I share all that because I, I want you to see this picture in Genesis. Genesis chapter 2, verse 10. Probably a scripture you think I wouldn't want to highlight for this. But he says, the author says this, A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. So here's this place of Eden that is marked as the presence of God. It's marked as really this picture of what uh, man was always made for, to know God. It's the house of God. And then Genesis says this, which I think is fascinating, that there's a river in this garden of Eden that flows from Eden downward and fans out into four other rivers. Why is that important? Because I want you to see a new way of the presence of the Lord and what Jesus has done. That actually implies that Eden holds a place of elevation compared to every other place. For the water is flowing downward from it. Listen to this. Ezekiel says this in chapter 28, verse 13 and 14. 
He says, you were in Eden, the garden of God. He says in verse 14, you were on the holy mountain of God. This place of intimacy, this place of seeing the face of God, this place of which we were all created for is literally the holy mountain of the Lord. You and I were created to dwell in this place with God. Man sins, and what is it? It's so interesting. Man sins, and what does it say? What do we call the sin of man? The fall of man. Isn't that interesting? Man just doesn't just have a moral stumbling. There is a spiritual descent that has taken place. That's why we call it fallen nature. We were created for the heights of him. Romans 3.23, for all have uh, sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You were created for the glory of God, to know him, to walk with him, to find life from him. Not from all the things here, that's secondary. And yet our sin has caused us to fall from this great height. And man now lives in a descent and there's something within the heart of man that inwardly aches to get back to that place whether you recognize it or not. Whether you recognize it or not, your inward aching is to know him. It's to be back in that place of communing with him on the mountain of the Lord. And here's, here's what's fascinating. This, this descent of man from this place, this fall, it doesn't just happen. It's not just a one-time thing. The, the scriptures say that when Adam and Eve sinned, that they were banished from the Garden of Eden, right? And then it says, later on in Genesis 4.16, it says that when Cain killed Abel, that Cain was actually banished from the presence of the Lord and banished to the land of Nod, east of Eden. Adam and Eve were banished from the Garden of Eden, but most likely still in Eden. When Cain killed Abel, now they were banished completely from Eden, had to move eastward. When you start to read through the progression of scriptures, you begin to see what's going on with humanity, created for the glory of God in this heights of the mountain of the Lord, and they have been on a rapid progression, descending away from the very presence they were made for. The scriptures actually show that any time, especially in the Psalms, any time that there is a path of descent, it's always a path of death to life, all the way to Sheol itself. The Psalms also show that when you, anytime you see an upward path of ascent, it's always from death unto life. This is why, because the presence of God is pictured on the mountain of the Lord. And so there's this rapid progression that is taking place as man is moving further away from the presence of God. And if I could speak into everyone's life for a moment and share what one way to sum up the plight of humanity, it's this right here. The problem is man still or continues to seek satisfaction eastward of Eden. That's it. Everything would stop if you adjusted your heart and realized well, we're going to see that Jesus has opened the door to the garden again. All of the destruction in our life can be boiled down to this. We are seeking satisfaction eastward of Eden. What's even more sad is many believers are doing the same. They've lost communing. They've lost feasting on the bread of life. I mean really feasting on him where their life oozes the life of Christ. It's just now a knowledge of him. And that's why in Psalm 63, David said what? He says, my soul thirsts. He says, it thirsts for the living God. He says, the problem is I live in a dry and weary land. He's capturing the essence of man's fall. He says, I have a thirst in my heart that can only be satisfied by God himself. And the problem is I live in a world that is unable to satisfy it. No matter how many jobs I have, no matter how many great relationships I have, it seems like no matter how great it's going, there's this longing inward ache for something more. David says it's found only in God. 
Thank God that he's placed that need in us to bring us back to himself. I can tell you right now, all of our accolades, earning respectability, earning influence, will never satisfy the human heart. It's only when we come back to him and learn to live from that place. My heart breaks because I know I've walked through it of how easy it is as a born-again believer to be able to profess certain truths about Christ. He's the fountain of joy. Oh, there's, there's infinite riches in him. There's, he's the prince of peace. I can confess these truths, but if I'm really honest, my heart is so restless. Why? I've actually convinced myself at times that isn't that just the way Christianity is? Isn't it just about having these really good titles and things? But we know you don't actually experience these things. No, no, the Lord says, no, Andrew, you have missed. You have missed how to follow me before you do anything else. I want to teach you and lead you into a hunger for the presence of the Lord. And so here's, here's this question that begins to arise in the scriptures right away. And it's this, as man is created for the mountain of the Lord, man descends, I mean descends at a rapid pace. The scriptures show that as man descends, also the intensification of sin is abounding in his life. In every way he is lost and broken. And the question begins to speak right here, who shall ascend the holy hill? Is there anyone who is able to ascend the holy mountain of God? Psalm 15 Psalm 24 said throughout the scriptures, this is what it's getting at. Man is in this place. Who is it? Who is worthy enough to bridge the gap of this brokenness and bring us back to a place of being in restoration to the presence of God? And I can tell you this, man by himself, all of us, all of us do not have a sufficient resume to submit to God in order to be able to look upon his face again. Therefore, each and every one of us are silenced before God in this place of dissented brokenness saying, God, who could rescue us from this place? Who could bring us back to what we were made for? Do you know, you know, this is fascinating? The Tower of Babel. You guys know this story, Tower of Babel? Maybe you can look at this a little bit differently and see what's happening here because Eden is beginning to, or I should say Genesis is laying out this longing for Eden, the longing for the mountain of the Lord, the longing for the presence of God. And in the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, it says that the people come together and they say, let us build, let us erect a city and a tower that will touch the heavens. We'll do it for our name's sake, and that way we won't be dispersed any further. The word for tower, it's migdal in the Hebrew. It's blew my mind. It's where we get the understanding of ziggurat. A ziggurat is actually an architecture that man builds to, for what? You know what it's supposed to look like? A sacred mountain. It's the essence of actually pyramids. Pyramids are meant to be ziggurats. That actually, what they are is an attempt by man to try to bridge the gap between heaven and earth. Of course man would try to do this. Of course man would try to build a tower from what he had lost. Man tried to recreate a sacred mountain to bring him back to where he was. And the Lord said it cannot be done. Even Adam made an innocence. The scriptures say he didn't walk into the garden. It doesn't say that Adam was created and that he entered. It said God placed him there. It's always been God's grace. And so I, I want you to just, just see this. Man created for the mountain. Man sins, falls. He's fallen. Now he's separated from the mountain of the Lord. And I could share many other accounts in the scriptures, but here's one in particular. It happens at Mount Sinai. And there's this progression that begins to take place where God is beginning to reinstate himself to broken humanity. 
I love this. Man cannot ascend the holy hill. So what does God do? God begins to come down to man. God in his grace begins to reestablish his presence in his people that they had so been longing for. And I want you to just hear this because I think we miss the weight of what happens at Mount Sinai. And one of the reasons why is because when we read through the scriptures and we begin to look at the journey of the Israelites from bondage into the promised land, when we read in our culture, we typically read in what is known as a linear structure. What that means is when we read and write, we start at point A, and then we get all the way to point B. And what happens at point B is the essence of what we were trying to, uh, trying to get to. It's the heart of the story. It's the climax. The problem with this is when we read into the Hebrew scriptures and we read into the journey of the Israelites, we do the same thing. We see them starting in bondage, and we think the whole entire point is to get to the promised land. We think it's just a matter of getting to the land. No, no, no. Hebrews don't write in linear structure. They typically write in what is known as a chiastic structure. This is actually when there's two equal parts, and what sits at the middle is the heartbeat of it. This is the essence of it. And wouldn't you know that the first five books of the Bible are written in a chiastic form? Not only that, but the journey of the wilderness is written in a chiastic form on a smaller scale. And both on the larger scale and the smaller scale, do you know what sits at the center of it? Sinai. The reestablishing of God's presence to his people. This is why when God goes to Moses and says, Moses, you guys have sinned by worshiping a golden calf. I'm going to give you access to the land. I'll send a messenger before you. You'll have the promise. One thing, Moses, I'm not going with you. What does Moses say? Then we're not going. Because he understood it wasn't just about getting to the land. It was about having the presence of God because he understand what is the Garden of Eden if God himself is not there? What is a stage if God is not there? What is a platform if God is not there? What is a crowd of followers if God is not there? What is the American dream if God is not in the midst of your life? What is an extra car in the driveway if God is not in your life? Oh, God is looking for people who grasp the reality of this. It's not about getting to a land. Stop lusting for the land, the Lord told me. Stop lusting for the things I've shared into your life. Yes, they're important, but there's one thing more important. Will you be faithful to me? God tested the heart of Moses. God is looking to, for people who place such a a price, such a value on his presence that they're saying, Lord, I know that thing you breathed into me a long time ago. God, yes, it's, it's exciting. It's everything I've wanted to walk in with you. But ultimately, if you don't go, I don't want it. Moses, Moses couldn't even comprehend making advancements without God going with him. What would be said of us? The presence of God was not just a stepping stone for Moses. Oh, so often I can use God just for things. God came to this earth to be known, not to be used. And so often he's just a stepping stone to get on a platform to say, look at me. But God is looking for the humble. God is looking for the Marys who make a lifetime ministry at sitting at his feet. And say, I don't care if you elevate me or not, God. There's one thing I want. One thing. Martha wants many things. I want one thing. I want you. I want you, Lord. The Lord is looking for people like that. My friends, if we would be a body, we will see God do miraculous things if we prioritize him in this way. And so here, here's the picture. Man's created for the mountain. Man falls. God begins to reestablish his presence at Mount Sinai. 
And I want you to just see this beautiful picture. I wish I had more time to show you this, but I want you to see something. The, the, the mountain of the Lord, at the base were the people of God, at the middle area was the elders, and at the top was Moses. You guys see that? There was three places. It's actually, the mountain of the Lord is actually a picture of the temple. It's a picture of the tabernacle. The outer courts, the holy place, and then the holy of holies. In fact, when the glory of God came at Mount Sinai, it came in a cloud. When the glory of God came at the tabernacle and it was constructed, it descended as a cloud. The cherubim that were placed at the Garden of Eden to keep Adam and Eve out of the true mountain of the Lord, cherubim are stitched on the veil of the most holy place, preventing man to come in. My point is this, is that the mountain of the Lord, the Garden of Eden, was literally transported to the temple. It was transported to the tabernacle. And as the Israelites travel through the wilderness, they literally have a portable mountain of the Lord. They have a portable Garden of Eden. Literally, God is in their midst again. The hope of paradise is back with his people. But as the glory cloud fell on the, on the tabernacle, it says that not even Moses could enter. And once again, the scriptures testify, who can come and behold the face of God? And here are the Israelites traveling through the arid wilderness with the Garden of Eden in their midst again. And I share all of that to lead you to one name to lead you to one who is able to ascend the holy hill. And I want you to see what he's laid down his life for so that we would lay down our lives to know him because it's the only thing that matters. And in John chapter 1, Jesus said, or it says about him, that in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. And then it says on in verse 13, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt literally means he tabernacled. He tented among us. The mountain of the Lord that was put into the old tabernacle, Jesus comes and it says literally, I am the fulfillment of that. Jesus is literally the embodiment of the mountain of the Lord. He is the embodiment of the Garden of Eden. He is literally life itself. That's why he says, if anyone thirsts, come to me and drink. As the scriptures say, out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. Why? Because rivers of living water flow out of Eden. And he says, I am the fulfillment of that. And so Jesus comes as the true picture of the mountain of the Lord now, except it's not veiled by a curtain, it's veiled by his flesh. And oh, if you can catch this, Jesus descends into the depths of our brokenness. He comes symbolically, physically, but literally symbolically, he comes and takes on the fullness of our descent. That descent, that fall, he comes down into us, taking that on. And he takes on the full weight of that, of that fall in the cross. And the scriptures say that when he takes on that cross, he begins to ascend the holy hill. What hill? Calvary. No one has been able to ascend the hill but one. Jesus, with our descent on his back, ascends the hill for me and for you. Don't mistake of the cost of this. The scriptures say that he was whipped with a cat of nine tails, filleted open. It says as he ascended the hill, literally his body gave out. Not because the cross was heavy. Medical professions say it's because of the trauma that his body went through. He was literally ripped open and he was possessed by love because you were on his mind. Like the joy of the Lord set before him as he could barely physically, as a man, get up that hill. He had you on his mind and said, I'm moving forward. 
And Jesus takes that cross, takes on our descent, comes up to the holy hill, and gives up his life for us. And it says, when that happens, the veil is torn. The veil is torn from top down. And what was stitched on the veil? The cherubim. The same cherubim that were put in the garden to not allow man to enter in. When Jesus gave up his life, the veil was torn, meaning the cherubim were split open. The holy mountain of God is made available. The holy of holies, the garden of Eden is made available. The presence of God is made available. And when a man confesses Christ, the spirit of God comes and lives within him. And you now have the holy of holies in you. Do we understand what God has made available? Do we treat it lightly? Do we treat being with him lightly? Moses said in Exodus 33:18, "Show me your glory." Meaning he's saying, "Show me your face, God." And Paul says, "Now by the ministry of the Spirit, we can behold the glory of God found in the face of Jesus Christ." How can this not be our primary ministry to see him, to know him, and to walk with him? And because of what Jesus has done, we don't have to ascend a physical mountain anymore. He's brought it to you. He's brought the presence to you, which means every time you come away to be with the Lord, every time you wake up early in the morning before anyone gets up and you have your cup of coffee, you're not just going into a spare room. You are ascending the holy hill. You are gazing upon the face of God. Every time you put your kids down and stay up late, tired maybe, as my wife does, throws her blanket over her back, Bible on the floor, She's not just doing something good. She's ascending the holy hill. Every time you're on your work, on way to, to work and you're commuting to work, and every time you switch to put on worship music, you're not just doing something to keep time going. You are ascending the holy hill. You are climbing the holy mountain, not by you, but by grace. I wrote this down. It's divine travel without soaring. It's stillness that causes, I'm sorry, it's divine travel without moving. It's stillness that causes you to soar. It's face-to-face -face with God Almighty. You don't need to climb up the mountain anymore because he's come down to us. And he calls us now to prioritize him. That's why Jesus told the Samaritan woman when she said, I know we worship on this mountain and you guys worship on the mountain of Jerusalem. And Jesus says, no, no, no. There's a time coming where you won't worship on any mountains because the spirit of God will live in you. You will be the holy tabernacle, which means anywhere you go, you will be able to be a laid-out lover for me. But do you know that you can have positional realities and not walk in it? Do you know that Paul said it is for freedom that Christ has set you free, so walk in your freedom? Meaning you can be free and live like a slave. And you can have the holy presence of God in you and never give him attention. And even more so, I've seen in my life, this has become an obligation at times. Being with God has even become burdensome. I say, Lord, restore our hearts back to our first love where we would see this is what we were made for. Yes. 